0: Section 10 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 1769, I 60. In 1769, so far as I can discover, the public was favoured with nothing of Johnson's composition, either for himself or for any of his friends. Footnote. He wrote the character of Mr. Mudge, See post under March the 20th, 1781. End a footnote. His meditations too strongly prove that he suffered much, both in body and mind. Footnote. September the 18th, 1769. This day completes the 60th year of my age. The last year has been wholly spent in a slow progress of recovery. Present meditations, page 85. End of footnote. Yet he was perpetually striving against evil, and nobly endeavouring to advance his intellectual and devotional improvement. Every generous and grateful heart must feel for the distresses of so eminent a benefactor to mankind, and now that his unhappiness is certainly known, must respect that dignity of character which prevented him from complaining. His Majesty, having the preceding year, instituted the Royal Academy of Arts in London, Johnson had now the honour of being appointed Professor in Ancient Literature, in which place he has been succeeded by Bennett Langton, Esquire. When that truly religious gentleman was elected to this honorary professorship at the same time that Edward Gibbon, Esquire, noted for introducing a kind of sneering, infidelity into his historical writings was elected professor in ancient history in the room of dr goldsmith i observed that it brought to my mind wicked will whiston and good mr ditton i am now also of that admirable institution as secretary for foreign correspondence by the favor of the academicians and the approbation of the sovereign Boswell goldsmith writing to his brother in january seventeen seventy said the king has lately been pleased to make me professor of ancient history in a royal academy of painting which he has just established but there is no salary annexed and i took it rather as a compliment to the institution than any benefit to myself honors to one in my situation are something like ruffles to one that wants a shirt Goldsmith wicked will whiston etc., comes from swift's ode for music on the longitude swift's works which begins the longitude missed on by wicked will whiston and not better hit on by good master ditton it goes on so grossly and so offensively as regards one and the other that boswell's comparison was a great insult to langton as well as to gibbon End of footnote. in the course of the year he wrote some letters to mrs Thrale, passed some part of the summer at oxford and at lichfield and when at oxford wrote the following letter to the rev mr thomas wharton dear sir Many years ago, when I used to read in the library of your college, I promised to recompense the college for that permission by adding to their books Baskerville's Virgil. I have now sent it, and desire you to reposit it on the shelves in my name. Footnote. It has this inscription in a blank leaf. Hunc librum dono Samuel Johnson. Eo hic loci studius interdum vacaret. Of this library, which is an old gothic room, he was very fond. On my observing to him that some of the modern libraries of the university were more commodious and pleasant for study as being more spacious and airy, he replied, Sir, if a man has a mind to prance, he might study at Christchurch and all souls. Boswell End a footnote. If you will be pleased to let me know when you have an hour of leisure, I will drink tea with you. I am engaged for the afternoon to-morrow, and on Friday. All my mornings are my own. Footnote. During this visit he seldom or never dined out. He appeared to be deeply engaged in some literary work. Miss Williams was now with him at Oxford, Boswell. It was more likely the state of his health which kept him at home. Writing from Oxford on june the twenty seventh of this year to Mrs. Thrale, who had been ill, he says I will not increase your uneasiness with mine. I hope I grow better. I am very cautious and very timorous Beyonce letters end a footnote. I am, etc Samuel Johnson, may the thirty first, seventeen sixty nine. I came to London in the autumn, and having informed him that I was going to be married in a few months, I wished to have as much of his conversation as I could, before engaging in a state of life which would probably keep me more in Scotland, and prevent me from seeing him so often as when I was a single man. But I found he was at Brightomstown with Mr. and Mrs. Thrale. I was very sorry that I had not his company with me at the Jubilee in honour of Shakespeare at Stratford-upon-Avon, the great poet's native town. Boswell wrote a letter signed with his own name to the London magazine for 1769, describing the Jubilee. It is followed by a print of himself in the dress of an armed Corsican chief, and by an account, no doubt written by himself, it says, Of the most remarkable masks upon this occasion was James Boswell, Esquire, in the dress of an armed Corsican chief. He entered the amphitheatre about twelve o'clock. On the front of his cap was embroidered in gold letters VIVA LA LIBERTA and on one side of it was a handsome blue feather and cockade so that it had an elegant as well as a warlike appearance. He wore no mask saying that it was not proper for a gallant corsican as soon as he came into the room he drew universal attention craddock memoirs gives a melancholy account of the festival the preparations were all behindhand, and the weather was stormy there was a masquerade in the evening and all zealous friends endeavoured to keep up the spirit of it as long as they could till they were at last informed that the Avon was rising so very fast that no delay could be admitted. The ladies of our party were conveyed by planks from the building to the coach, and found that the wheels had been two feet deep in water. Garrick in 1771 was asked by the Stratford committee to join them in celebrating a jubilee every year as the most likely method to promote the interest and reputation of their town boswell courted the proposal eagerly and writing to garrick said i please myself with the prospect of attending you at several more jubilees at stratford upon avon garrick correspondence johnson's connection both with shakespeare and garrick founded a double claim to his presence and it would have been highly gratifying to mr garrick Upon this occasion I particularly lamented that he had not that warmth of friendship for his brilliant pupil which we may suppose would have had a benignant effect on both. Garrick's correspondence not seldom spoke disrespectfully of Johnson. Thus Mr. Sharp, writing to him in 1769, talks of risking the sneer of one of Doc Johnson's ghastly smiles. Ibid. Doctor J. Hoadley, in a letter dated July the twenty fifth, seventeen seventy five, says, "Mr. Goodenough has written a kind of parody of puffy pensioners, taxation no tyranny, under the noble title of resistance no rebellion." Ibid. End of footnote. When almost every man of eminence in the literary world was happy to partake in this festal of genius. The absence of johnson could not but be wondered at and regretted the only trace of him there was in the whimsical advertisement of a haberdasher who sold shakespearean ribbons of various dyes and by way of illustrating their appropriation to the bard introduced a line from the celebrated prologue at the opening of drury lane theatre each change of many-coloured life he drew from Brightonstone, dr johnson wrote me the following letter which they who may think that i ought to have suppressed must have less ardent feelings than i always have avowed footnote in the preface to my account of corsica published in seventeen sixty eight i thus express myself he who publishes a book affecting not to be an author and professing an indifference for literary fame may possibly impose upon many people such an idea of his consequence as he wishes may be received for my part i shall be proud to be known as an author and i have an ardent ambition for literary fame for of all possessions i should imagine literary fame to be the most valuable a man who has been able to furnish a book which has been approved by the world has established himself as a respectable character in distant society without any danger of having that character lessened by the observation of his weaknesses to preserve an uniform dignity among those who see us every day is hardly possible and to aim at it must put us under the fetters of perpetual restraint the author of an approved book may allow his natural disposition an easy play, and yet indulge the pride of superior genius when he considers that, by those who know him only as an author, he never ceases to be respected. Such an author, when in his hours of gloom and discontent, may have the consolation to think that his writings are, at that very time, giving pleasure to numbers. And such an author may cherish the hope of being remembered after death which has been a great object to the noblest minds in all ages boswell his preface to the third edition thus ends when i first ventured to send this book into the world i fairly owned an ardent desire for literary fame i have obtained my desire and whatever clouds may overcast my days, I can now walk here among the rocks and woods of my ancestors, with an agreeable consciousness that I have done something worthy. The dedication of the first edition and the preface of the third are both dated October the twenty-ninth, one one seventeen sixty seven and the other seventeen sixty eight. October the twenty-ninth was his birthday, end of footnote to james boswell esq dear sir why do you charge me with unkindness i have omitted nothing that could do you good or give you pleasure unless it be that i have forborne to tell you my opinion of your account of corsica i believe my opinion if you think well of my judgment might have given you pleasure but when it is considered how much vanity is excited by praise i am not sure that it would have done you good Your history is like other histories. But your journal is in a very high degree curious and delightful. There is, between the history and the journal, that difference which there will always be found between notions borrowed from without, and notions generated within. Your history was copied from books. Your journal rose out of your own experience and observation, You express images which operated strongly upon yourself, and you have impressed them with great force upon your readers. I know not whether I could name any narrative by which curiosity is better excited or better gratified. I am glad that you are going to be married, and as I wish you well in things of less importance, wish you well with proportionate ardour in this crisis of your life what i can contribute to a happiness i shall be very unwilling to withhold for i have always loved and valued you and shall love and value you still more as you become more regular and useful effects which a happy marriage will hardly fail to produce i do not find that i am likely to come back very soon from this place i shall perhaps stay a fortnight longer and a fortnight is a long time to a lover absent from his mistress. Would a fortnight ever have an end? I am, dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Samuel Johnson, Brightamston, September ninth, 1769. After his return to town we met frequently, and I continued the practice of making notes of his conversation, though not with so much assiduity as I wish I had done. At this time, indeed, I had a sufficient excuse for not being able to appropriate so much time to my journal for General Paoli. Footnote, Paoli's father had been one of the leaders of the Corsicans in their revolt against Genoa in 1734. Paoli himself was chosen by them as their general-in-chief in 1755. In 1769, the island was conquered by the French. He escaped in an English ship and settled in England. Here he stayed till seventeen eighty nine, when Mirabeau moved in the National Assembly the recall of all the Corsican patriots. Paoli was thereupon appointed by Louis the Sixteenth Lieutenant General and Military Commandant in Corsica. He resisted the violence of the Convention and was in consequence summoned before it. Refusing to obey, an expedition was sent to arrest him. Napoleon Bonaparte fought in the French army, but Paoli's party proved the stronger. The islanders sought the aid of Great Britain, and offered the crown of Corsica to George Third. The offer was accepted, but by an act of incredible folly, not Paoli, but Sir Gilbert Elliot was made Viceroy. Paoli returned to England, Where he died in 1807 at the age of eighty-two in 1796 corsica was abandoned by the english by the revolution it ceased to be a conquered province having been formally declared an integral part of france at the present day the corsicans are proud of being citizens of that great country no less proud however are they of pascal paoli and of the gallant struggle for independence of their forefathers End of footnote. General Paoli, after Corsica had been overpowered by the monarchy of France, was now no longer at the head of his brave countrymen, but having with difficulty escaped from his native island, had sought an asylum in Great Britain, and it was my duty as well as my pleasure to attend much upon him. Footnote. According to the annual register, Paoli arrived in London on September the twenty-first. He certainly was in London on October the tenth, for on that day he was presented by Boswell to Johnson. Yet Wesley records in his journal on October the thirteenth, "I very narrowly missed meeting the great Pascal Paoli. He landed in the dock in square brackets at Portsmouth, but a very few minutes after I left the waterside." Surely he who hath been with him from his youth up, hath not sent him into England for nothing. In the Public Advertiser for October the fourth, there is the following entry, inserted no doubt by Boswell. On Sunday last, General Paoli, accompanied by James Boswell, Esquire, took an airing in Hyde Park in his coach. Prize Goldsmith. Horace Walpole writes all character had been so advantageously exaggerated by mr boswell's enthusiastic and entertaining account of him that the opposition were ready to incorporate him in the list of popular tribunes the court artfully intercepted the project and deeming patriots of all nations equally corruptible bestowed a pension of one thousand pounds a year on this unheroic fugitive memoirs of the reign of george the third a footnote such particulars of johnson's conversation at this period as i have committed to writing i shall here introduce without any strict attention to methodical arrangement sometimes short notes of different days shall be blended together and sometimes a day may seem important enough to be separately distinguished he said he would not have Sunday kept with rigid severity and gloom, but with a gravity and simplicity of behaviour. Footnote. Johnson, writes Mrs. Piozzi, anecdotes ridiculed a friend who, looking out on Streatham Common from our windows, lamented the enormous wickedness of the times, because some bird-catchers were busy there one fine Sunday morning. While half the christian world is permitted said johnson to dance and sing and celebrate sundays a day of festivity how comes your puritanical spirit so offended with frivolous and empty deviations from exactness whoever loads life with unnecessary scruples sir continued he provokes the attention of others on his conduct and incurs the censure of singularity without reaping the reward of superior virtue. See Boswell's Hebrides, August twentieth seventeen seventy three. And I told him that David Hume had made a short collection of Scotticisms. The first edition of Hume's History of England was full of Scotticisms, many of which he corrected in subsequent editions. Malone according to mr j h burton life of Hume, he appears to have earnestly solicited the aid of lyttelton mallet and others whose experience of english composition might enable them to detect scotticisms mr burton gives instances of alterations made in the second edition he says also that in none of his historical or philosophical writings does any expression used by him unless in those cases where a Scoticism has escaped his vigilance, betray either the district or the county of his origin, Ibid. Hume was shown in manuscript, reads, Inquiry into the Human Mind. Though it was an attack on his own philosophy, yet in reading it he kept, he says, a watchful eye all along over the style, so that he might point out any Scotticisms Ibid. Nevertheless, as Dugald Stewart says in his life of Robertson, Hume fails frequently, both in purity and grammatical correctness. Even in his later letters I have noticed Scottishisms. End footnote. I wonder, said Johnson, that he should find them. He would not admit the importance of the question concerning the legality of general warrants. In 1763, Wilkes, as author of the North Britain number 45, had been arrested on a general warrant directed to four messengers, to take up any persons without naming or describing them with any certainty, and to bring them together with their papers. Such a warrant as this, Chief Justice Pratt, Lord Camden, declared to be unconstitutional, illegal, and absolutely void and you will register a footnote such a power he observed must be vested in every government to answer particular cases of necessity and there can be no just complaint but when it is abused for which those who administer government must be answerable it is a matter of such indifference a matter about which the people care so very little that were a man to be sent over Britain, to offer them an exemption from it at a halfpenny apiece, very few would purchase it. This was a specimen of that laxity of talking, which I have heard him fairly acknowledge. For surely, while the power of granting general warrants was supposed to be legal, and the apprehension of them hung over our heads, we did not possess that security of freedom, congenial to our happy constitution, and which, by the intrepid exertions of Mr. Wilkes, has been happily established. He said, The duration of Parliament, whether for seven years, or the life of the King, appears to me so immaterial, that I would not give half a crown to turn the scale one way or the other. Footnote. In the spring of this year at a meeting of the electors of Southwark instructions had been presented to Mr Thrale and his brother member, of which the twelfth was that you promote a bill for shortening the duration of parliaments Gentlemen's magazine end of footnote. The habeas corpus is the single advantage which our government has over that of other countries on the thirtieth of september we dined together at the mitre i attempted to argue for the superior happiness of the savage life upon the usual fanciful topics johnson sir there can be nothing more false the savages have no bodily advantages beyond those of civilized men they have not better health and as to care or mental uneasiness they are not above it but below it Like bears. No, sir, you are not to talk such paradox. This paradox Johnson had exposed twenty-nine years earlier in his Life of Sir Francis Drake, Works, Volume 6, page three, six, six. In Rasselas, chapter eleven, he considers also the same question. Imlac is inclined to conclude that if nothing counteracts the natural consequences of learning we grow more happy as our minds take a wider range he then enumerates the advantages which civilization confers on the europeans they are surely happy said the prince who have all these conveniences the europeans answered imlac are less unhappy than we but they are not happy. Human life is everywhere a state in which much is to be endured and little to be enjoyed. Writing to Mrs. Thrale from Skye, Johnson said, The traveller wanders through a naked desert, gratified sometimes, but rarely, with the sight of cows, and now and then finds a heap of loose stones and turf in a cavity between rocks where a being born with all those powers which education expands and all those sensations which culture refines is condemned to shelter itself from the wind and rain philosophers there are who try to make themselves believe that this life is happy but they believe it only while they are saying it and never yet produce conviction in a single mind piozzi letters see post april the twenty first and may the seventh seventeen seventy three april the twenty sixth seventeen seventy six and june the fifteenth seventeen eighty four and a footnote no sir you are not to talk such paradox let me have no more on't. it cannot entertain far less can it instruct lord monboddo footnote james burnet a scotch lord of session by the title of lord monboddo he was a devout believer in the virtues of the heroic ages and the deterioration of civilized mankind, a great contemner of luxuries, insomuch that he never used a wheel carriage. Walter Scott, quoted in Croker's Boswell. There is some account of him in Chambers' Traditions of Edinburgh. In his Origin of Language, to which Boswell refers in his next note after praising henry stephen for his greek dictionary he continues but to compile a dictionary of a barbarous language such as all the modern are compared with the learned is a work which a man of real genius rather than undertake would choose to die of hunger the most cruel it is said of all debts i should however have praised this labour of dr johnson's more though of the meanest kind etc. Monboddo's origin of language on page two seven one he says dr johnson was the most invidious and malignant man I have ever known see post march twenty first seventeen seventy two may eighth seventeen seventy three and boswell's hebrides august twenty first seventeen seventy three and a footnote lord monboddo one of your scotch judges talked a great deal of such nonsense I suffered him, but I will not suffer you. Boswell, but sir, does not Rousseau talk such nonsense? Johnson, true sir, but Rousseau knows he is talking nonsense, and laughs at the world for staring at him. Boswell, how so sir? Johnson, why sir, a man who talks nonsense so well, must know that he is talking nonsense but I am afraid, chuckling and laughing, Mombodo does not know that he is talking nonsense. His Lordship having frequently spoken in an abusive manner of Dr. Johnson in my company, I on one occasion, during the lifetime of my illustrious friend, could not refrain from retaliation, and repeated to him this saying he has since published i don't know how many pages in one of his curious books attempting in much anger but with pitiful effect to persuade mankind that my illustrious friend was not the great and good man which they esteemed and ever will esteem him to be boswell End footnote. Boswell. is it wrong then sir to affect singularity in order to make people stare johnson yes if you do it by propagating error and indeed it is wrong in any way there is in human nature a general inclination to make people stare and every wise man has himself to cure of it and does cure himself mrs piozzi anecdote says mr johnson was indeed unjustly supposed to be a lover of singularity few people had a more settled reverence for the world than he or was less captivated by new modes of behaviour introduced or innovations on the long received customs of common life in writing to dr taylor to urge him to take a certain course he says this i would have you do not in compliance with solicitation or advice but as a justification of yourself to the world the world has always a right to be regarded notes and queries in the adventurer number one three one he has a paper on singularities after quoting fontenelle's observation on newton that He was not distinguished from other men by any singularity, either natural or affected. He goes on. Some may be found who, supported by the consciousness of great abilities, and elevated by a long course of reputation and applause, voluntarily consign themselves to singularity, affect to cross the roads of life, because they know that they shall not be jostled, and indulge a boundless gratification of will because they perceive that they shall be quietly obeyed singularity is, I think, in its own nature universally and invariably displeasing writing of Swift, he says works volume eight page two to three whatever he did he seemed willing to do in a manner peculiar to himself without sufficiently considering that singularity as it implies a contempt of the general practice, is a kind of defiance, which justly provokes the hostility of ridicule. He therefore who indulges peculiar habits is worse than others, if he be not better. End of if you wish to make people stare by doing better than others, why make them stare till they stare their eyes out? but consider how easy it is to make people stare by being absurd. I may do it by going into a drawing-room without my shoes. You remember the gentleman in The Spectator, who had a commission of lunacy taken out against him for his extreme singularity, such as never wearing a wig, but a nightcap. Now, sir, abstractedly, the nightcap was best, but relatively, the advantage was overbalanced by his making the boys run after him. Footnote. He had many other particularities for which he gave sound and philosophical reasons. As this humour still grew upon him, he chose to wear a turban instead of a periwig, concluding very justly that a bandage of clean linen about his head was much more wholesome, as well as cleanly, than the call of a week which is soiled with frequent perspirations spectator number five seven six end of footnote end of section ten